The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Thursday, July 23rd, 2015. From Slate, it's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca, and I have here in my hand, I have the papal approval ratings. The papal approval. The envelope, please. And the popey goes to... Ooh, approval ratings down from 76% in early 2014 to 59% today. Ah, the Pope taking it on the the papal chin. Let's get inside these numbers. Catholics' approval of the Pope, right? Don't they have to? Anyway, it's down 18%. Protestants and other Christians since 2014... They're down 19%. Do the Protestants and other Christians, do they get a vote? Eh, in fact, the Catholics don't really get a vote either. The Pope's popularity, the popularity with American Catholics today stands at 71%, down from 89% a year ago. That 71% is 2% less than how popular he was among Protestants A year ago, let me put this in perspective. You know the word Protestant, the root protest? You know what they were protesting? The Pope, Catholicism, essentially the Pope. That's why they're Protestants. Anyway, I'd like to point to the last column here. Here are the full numbers for this latest papal approval poll. Favorable ratings for the Pope among Americans, 59%. Unfavorable, 16%. Never heard of slash no opinion, 25%. Never. Those are two very different things. I would hope that there aren't too many in the never heard of Jim Pope. Guy who lives on the block. No, the Pope. People whose name first name is the. You know, they're they're important. You need to have heard of them. But but the never heard of no opinion stands at twenty five percent. Now a year ago, when they asked about the Pope and if you approved of him, Americans were at sixteen percent of never heard of no opinion. So how did 9% more Americans not hear of him than heard of him last time? That couldn't have happened. It must be that 9% more Americans are saying, you know what, I just don't have an opinion. And to me, that tells me it's not a good opinion. These could be Catholics going, I don't want to say anything bad about the guy. Just put me down as no opinion. Now, over in the Vatican, they're probably having this conversation, right? The chief pollster, Bishop goes to the Pope and says, Pontiff, we have the Gallup poll here, and your approval ratings, they're, they're not good. And I hope the Pope would say to this, my son, Bishop Luntz, first of all, who calls me Pontiff on first reference? It's a second reference thing. Second of all, so hearing about these numbers, I, I could do a couple things. I could juice my image, or I could remember that I am the vicar of Christ on earth. So As unlikable as I may be among males 34 to 56, you know, that's troublesome. I still keep coming back to the vicar of Christ on earth thing. I am infallible. Not all the time, but when I'm ex cathedra, I am infallible. So if I have to choose between this being a me thing or a them thing, I'm going to go with them thing. Also, you know, because as the vicar of Christ on earth, the me thing strongly implies a certain other trinity that... You know, they poll pretty well. And then Bishop Luntz would say, well, that's just the thing, Father. 
we've done some focus group testing on the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost. Holy Ghost is playing really well with millennials. You need to be in that space. The Son, Jesus, doing well, especially baby Jesus. Baby Jesus tests through the roof. If you could throw baby before Jesus, very high favorable. Also, mentions of mangers or the Christ child or swaddling clothes. These do really well. They really move the needle. The problem is the God thing, just not connecting, especially among Protestants. Now, the Pope is probably answering, oh, if I only had the power to smite thee. Well, thank you, Cardinal Luntz. I will certainly think about everything you've told me. Now I have to go bless a donkey. And then the, and then the Cardinal would say, that's good, Father. We could make a gif of that. Or maybe if he could heal a leper. Research shows that could go viral. On the show today, I spiel about a better response to the heckle, Black Lives Matter. But now, all right, yesterday... We laid down the foundation for the interview we're going to play right now. It's with a rapper, a rocker, a rebel, and a raconteur, as you will hear. You might want to listen to yesterday's interview with Leon Nafak, the author of the book, The Next Next Level. It is about the recording artist Juicebox. Now, the, the next next level, what's that even mean? Let's play this clip. This is from a show a couple years ago, and Juicebox is going to explain and then we'll get into our interview. How many of you guys out there know about that next level? Yeah, man, that's what your, uh, that's what your fucking parents warn you about, man. That's what your motherfucking, uh, your professors warn you about, man. They said, hey, man, don't go to the next level, because if you go to that next motherfucking level, you're going to never go back tonight. We are not only going to the next level, but we're going to that level above the next level. That's right, tonight, Nashville, we're going to the next, next level. Who's with me? Say yeah. And now we are joined by Juice Box himself. Can I call you Juice? Yeah. Can I call you Box? Whatever you I'll want. You Whatever you want. How has the, there's a part of the book where they talked about changing your name and like everything that's a question of art, you stuck to it. But how has the name Juice Box helped or hurt you throughout your career? Well, you know, I mean, it's a stupid name. <laughs> I mean, like, I'm not going to argue. I, will, I, I was thinking about doing a mixtape, like a quick mixtape later in the year called Grown Ass Man with a Dumb Ass Name. Yeah. So, I mean, that's a stupid name, too. Who else would be in that, like Adam Ant when he was a uh, I mean, performer? most most names are dumb, though. Yeah. Yeah. But, but three X's, do you regret that? I know well, you regret nothing. But. No, I mean, I regret a ton. <laughs> like, don't get me... Uh, well, the three X's, it's funny. I would think I was just trying to get, like, an Angel Fire domain name or something, and one X was taken. That is not a joke. I mean, all of this stuff comes from, like, ridiculous choices I made when I was 15. <laughs> yeah. And this is what my life is based so on. So do all of us, but yours just stick with you because they you brand yourself with those ridiculous choices. Yeah. You're like a living tattoo. If What happened if they let 15-year-olds get tattoos? Yeah, no, to, I've said that before. Like, I don't have any tattoos. I don't need tattoos. My life is one weird, like, decision that I've just, like, stuck with and, like, just gone with my gut the whole time, you know? <laughs> my favorite of the deep dive, I don't know how deep, I haven't done a Leon deep dive, but as I've perused your oeuvre on YouTube, my favorite video is uh, that Chicago Kids show. So you're basically the best rapper for kids because you have a kid's name, Juicebox. Yeah, absolutely. So tell me what's cool about being Juicebox. Well, I get to travel around on a Greyhound bus and play shows for kids like you guys. Yay! 
Yeah, well, you know, Chica Gogo is a pretty legendary show. Like, if you look at the archives of that YouTube page, it's yeah. like Fugazi. All sorts of crazy bands have been on this children's show. But the thing is, usually when a band goes on this show, they kind of dress up in goofy costumes. Or, Kill But audience. I didn't do that. You were doing leg kicks that didn't probably in real life didn't imperil a two-year-old, but looked like it may have. Or did Yeah, it? I mean, there, there was a bit of tension throughout that performance. <laughs> but that's what I like. That's To me, that's rock and roll. Like, you got... That tension is essential to, like, you know, what I consider to be a good rock and roll performance. I know. When I take a look back at my past, I don't know what to say. But I can't think about that shit right now. You know I got a show to play. I think I'm on the edge of going insane. Thunder in my brain like a runaway train. Sleeping on a floor just trying to exist. I don't know how much longer I can live like this. Yeah, but I'm feeling all right tonight. Got a broken so I say to people, what do you think of this? I, I, at first, I'm like, I really like his music. I, and then I say, I like it unironically. And I'm like, what am I talking about? I don't like it fully ironically. But there's definitely some irony that I like it with. Like, it reminds me of a Bob Seger song that I can't say is, you know, exalted art or whatever. But it's so it's reminiscent of these things. And there's a little bit of irony. Irony being just, it's not just the thing. It's sort of commenting on the thing. Well, you know, I'm just, uh, I'm a fan of that stuff so deeply. And like, whenever I'm like really into something, my kind of reaction is to like engage with it or write music that sounds like it or try to fold it into what else I've already been doing. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? So when I got into Springsteen, I kind of like started to connect the dots between kind of the way he uses language and the way like Andrew WK uses language and then or the way a rapper uses language. And I felt like I could figure out a way to make it work for myself. Like, I don't think irony is the right word, but I think I'm consciously dealing with some tropes. Absolutely. But, you know, but that's that's always been true with rock and roll. I don't know. I mean, it's deeply, deeply... I mean, Springsteen is, like, a big deal to me. More. I mean, I love Seeger, too, but Springsteen is really one of the core influences of what I do. And, like, you know, you put that together with selling energy drinks or whatever, and it's going to get <laughs> kind of confusing, but that's what I... You know, obviously, that's what's exciting about it to me. Because, like, you know, Springsteen is this form of Americana, and, you know, I make these energy drinks, and to me, that's very contemporary Americana. So it's just, like, synthesizing all these, like... American forms. Well, if Springsteen existed now, you know, his hustle might be energy drinks. And or it might ex- be rapping, you know? Yeah, I-, I could see it. He did rap on his last album, or at least yeah, he no- didn't do it. He hired a pro rapper, yeah. and it wasn't terribly embarrassing. All right, so being the subject of the book, it's gotten you press, literally. It's yeah. gotten you attention. Have, have the number of people at your crowds gone up? I mean, I haven't really toured since then. Uh-huh. So you got to take we'll advantage. See. I mean, and the funny thing is, like, <laughs> this is classic juice box insanity, but, like, anybody who just, like, jumped on board, like, somehow if they read this book and they became a fan, which I don't know how much, much of that's going to happen, I have no goddamn idea but if they're probably not even going to be able to figure out where these shows are (laughs) like you know what i mean like some of these shows like i'm playing in people's houses and like i'm not it's like i'm not like taking pride in that it's just the way it is for me right now you know and like i mean of course i could book shows at like some bar that would be listed in the local all weekly but it's like these shows are going to be better for me 
Well, will you tweet it at least? Yeah, of okay. course. I mean, it's not going to be like, I mean, well, there is one. It's funny. There's one venue on this tour that I've played before, and it was an incredible show, like house show. It was super well attended. But they not only can their address not be online, that's pretty normal, but they no Facebook event page for the show. Yeah. The only promotion is word of mouth and posters around town. Uh-huh. Which town is it in? It's in Chicago. All right. It's a place called Situations. Of course, I can't say anymore. We don't know what but situations it, listen, is. Listen, if somebody wants to email me, I can give you the info over email. You want to give your email? Yeah, jb at thunderzone.biz. At biz? You got the biz address. <laughs> I got thunderzone.biz and I got enterthethunderzone.com. <laughs> I got two dot coms for the label. <laughs> Walking in Milwaukee like every day Through snow and sleep back to where I stay Across the bridge, how I live so being uh, the subject of a book, what's been good, what's been bad? I mean, this has been the one of the most tripped out experiences of my life, of course. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, there's been times where I've been like so frustrated and pissed. And there's been times when I've been psyched. You know, and it fluctuates for yeah. me. But know? I think you should be psyched. I mean, I found that about you and I didn't think that there was anything in the book that did anything but flesh you out as a character and make you seem like an interesting person. But so what pissed you off? What? I mean, I don't know. I just uh, it's really like a control thing for me. Yeah. Like I don't wasn't in control of my own story mm-hmm. anymore with that book. And somehow, like, I mean, I've done everything myself for 15 years. So to have one of the more significant things happen to me and I'm not in the driver's seat for that, you know, of course that's hard. But do you think he got anything wrong? I mean, I don't know. I think we come from very different backgrounds and I think like maybe like I think a lot of my beefs with the book, if I have any at all, like I'm going to step back in a year and realize they were nitpicky or something. I have no idea and there's no real way to answer this question without getting kind of gossipy in a stupid way. So I'm not going to. So Leon talks about how there's a difference between the critic and the artist. Do you buy that? No. No. I <laughs> don't. I know why. Because you're an artist, and an artist can still be a critic. But it's to the guy who can't be or thinks he can't be the artist, kind of envies the I guy. I mean, I don't know. Do not both. all... I don't... I would say that not all artists are critics, but I think that there is, like... I mean, I think any good artist, even if they're not sitting down and writing criticism, the editing process is its own criticism. Mm -hmm. And the editing process is so crucial for any creative act, as you're going to see when you edit this podcast and make me look really smart and cool. (laughs) But yeah, so like, I don't know. I think in a way, like a creative person can't help but be a critic on some level because they just have to always be self-examining. When Leon approached you, hey, I want to do a book about you, what was your reaction? Well, it was never supposed to be a book at first. Like none of us, and this is the God's honest truth, none of us thought that that's, I believe Leon that he didn't think it was even going to be a book. Like he was like, you know, I'm going to write something. And, you know, a portion of the book showed up in a M plus one. And I just kind of like in the back of my head, like I thought the end game might be that it shows up as some sort of piece of long form journalism. Mm-hmm. Like my mind was not going towards book ever. So when he sprung that on me, it was pretty confusing, you know. And uh, I don't know. I mean, like, I don't think I've processed any of this yet. You know, I mean, it's like it's. I can't tell if it's not a big deal or if it's a big deal or like if it's really about me or, you know, I don't know. It's, it's, there's a lot of things up in the air to think about. So I don't know. I mean, it's a, it is a book about me and that is something I can like tell somebody in a bar, I guess, if I'm like trying to seem cool. 
Look, I would say this about Leon. I totally understand the book. I totally understand. I empathize with all the swirl of emotions you have around it. But, you know, he's he's a really good journalist. Sure. He's a really sweet guy. He has your best interest in heart. Like, very few artists could do better than to have their big bursting onto the scene be handled with kind of the loving care that Leon handled. Yeah, no, it's handled with care, and I'm just paranoid. I know. And I'm controlling of my own output. So, like... I can't help but think about like an- the Anvil movie or whatever. You know what right. I mean? Like I can't right. help but and it and you know I shouldn't be reading reviews of this book, but I have been reading them, and it's just I don't know. It's confusing. Right. But so but re- you know what it is though? It's a ch- like this whole book to me is a challenge to transcend whatever space I'm in or whatever space this book will carve out for me. It's just a challenge for me to make better music and to make something that will like make all of this shit just a footnote. But the history of music shows that, like, there are often guys take Springsteen, written about by John Landau and the Boston Phoenix, and for a while it's like, wow, is this my legacy? Or cover a time in Newsweek in 1975, and it's like, wow, is this how people will know me? And then he goes and makes the music, and people know him for the art, and then all the stuff written about him does become a footnote. All of this shit is so new to me, this book, all of this stuff that, like, I'm just kind of working out how I feel about it. Absolutely. And I think that's important to note because it's all subject to change. How could you not feel ambivalent? And what's ambivalent except conflicting feelings and thoughts? And it's ultimately, of course, it's positive. And nothing like this will probably ever happen to me again. Best case scenario, I quit soon and work at an advertising agency. Sadly, that probably won't happen. That's probably what I should do, you know? But... Sad, I'm gonna just keep playing shows in people's houses until I die, you know? Juice Box. Thanks, man. Thank you for having me. Slate's Culture Gab Fest is coming to Chicago for the very first time. Join Stephen Metcalf, Julia Turner, and Dana Stevens as they discuss the most compelling cultural happenings of the week with a Q&A to follow. The event will be recorded for an upcoming episode of the podcast, all happening on Tuesday, September 22nd at the Music Box Theater in Chicago. Show starts at 7. A limited number of tickets will be made available for a 6 p.m. cocktail hour. Slate Plus members get early access to tickets starting today, Thursday, July 23rd. Third. Tickets go on sale to the public at 5 p.m. on Friday, July 24th. Get on that. For more information, go to slate.com slash culture shy. Like the shy in Chicago. Let me spell it out for you. Slate.com slash C-U-L-T-U-R-E-C-H-I. And now the spiel. What matters? At a recent political conference attended by Democratic presidential candidates not named Hillary Clinton, activists constantly interrupted the speakers with their message. If I die in police custody! If I die in police custody! Call my mom first! Call my mom first! Then burn this down! Then burn this down! This issue is so... The Creed Corps Black Lives Matter 
prompted former Maryland Governor Martin O'Malley to answer this way. Black lives matter, white lives matter, all lives matter. How many black people have killed police officers this year? How many? Not met with approval. For why this was a dumb thing to say, I now turn to the fabulous podcast, Podcast for America. Annie Lowry explains why this was a dumb thing to say. I don't actually think that the answer, all lives matter, is necessarily substantively a bad one, but it's one that doesn't necessarily speak to the concerns of the people that are bringing this issue up. Alex Wagner adds, When O'Malley said, all lives matter, white lives matter, it was like, you're kind of completely missing the point here. Yes, yes, and yes. So what should O'Malley have said? Well, here's what I might have said. I might have said, yes, Yes. black Black lives matter. matter. And I I want to say say that I take that seriously. seriously. That because Because black black lives matter, matter, we need reform. We need laws. We need tangible steps like retraining and body cams. And my God, do we need better statistics and better accounting of the extent of the demographics and scope of this national outrage. Do you know we don't even know the number of black people or all people killed by law enforcement? There is no reason we can't get those numbers. But now I'm going to say something that may get me booed, and that's fine, but just give me a chance afterwards to explain why I'm saying it. I want to say that black lives matter, white lives matter, and all lives matter. Now, this is me, Mike, stepping out of the O'Malley role. It's good for him to say that. It's good for a politician to say that sort of thing because it's not a pander, okay? It shows that if, if your opponents, if someone wants to excerpt a part of the clip to use against you, you have that part of the clip so you can show that you're being all-encompassing. All right, so back to O'Malley. All lives matter. I'm not saying this to diminish or to equate or to compare. I believe that if every white person in America experienced policing as every black person in America experiences policing, then policing would change tomorrow. I firmly believe that. But why I say white lives matter and that all lives matter is to emphasize that we have a shared humanity. And I hope that is hopeful and I hope that's not dismissive because I think this is how change is going to happen. It has been said that when one person's civil rights are violated, all of our civil rights are violated. And it's been said that to cheapen the lives of any group of men cheapens the lives of all men. I, as a white person, I buy that and I'm motivated by that. And I believe that most people in this country can be made to see that, that we have a shared humanity. And if the majority of this nation would just see what the minority goes through, they would be appalled. Maybe that's not true for every white person, But it doesn't have to be. It just has to be true for every or almost every white person who wants to continue telling himself or herself that they're a good person. I do think they'd be shocked. I do think they'd demand change. And that's why I think a change is going to come. And if O'Malley, stepping out of the O'Malley role, if O'Malley wants to go there, he could even say, and I know as president, I will make that change come along. All right, back to O'Malley again. One last thing, and let's be practical here. Let's be tactical here. If we reject the notion that all lives matter when it comes to change, we make this us against them. And let me be real right here. What I'm saying is we make this you against them. And in the 300 plus year history of America, how is you against them going? 
I'm not naive. I know there's still a huge power imbalance in this country. So let's make this issue a black-white coalition. Let's not slow the train down, but let's offer everyone who wants a ticket the chance to get on board. We need accountability. We need change. We can get change because black lives matter, black voices matter, and your voice will be heard. And then you could add the, I'm Martin O'Malley and I approve this message thing. I don't know if it would work. It just seems a lot better than the answer he gave. Give it a shot, Martin O'Malley. What have you got to lose? And that's it for today's show. Andrea Salenzi is the producer of The Gist. Among her other titles, Bishop of Rome, Vicar of Jesus Christ, successor of the Prince of the Apostles. Joel Meyer, managing producer, a.k.a. Supreme Pontiff of the Universal Church, Primate of Italy, Archbishop and Metropolitan of the Roman Province. Andy Bauer is executive producer, known also as Sovereign of the Vatican City State, Servant of the Servants of God, Vicar of Peter, Vicar of the Prince of the Apostles. The Gist, we humbly go by Vicar of the Apostolic Sea, Vicar of the Gentleman Sea, Vicar of Avon by the Sea, Die Vicar with a Vengeance, Vic Tabak of Mel's Diner, Vicar before Beer, Never Fear, Vicar before Liquor, Never Sicker, and we remind you to tune in for all of these titles and more next fall on NBC Vatican SVU Special Vicars Unit. Thanks for listening. Hey, this is Brian Koppelman, host of the Slate podcast, The Moment. This week's guest is Paul Giamatti. How cool is that? Not a guy who does a lot of podcasts. I asked Paul what it's like to work with actors like Johnny Depp and Russell Crowe. I asked him how he prepares, and I asked him how he feels about his place in the industry. Go check it out, itunes.com slash The Moment.